Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be here with you today. Those of you that are in the building and those of you that are with us online today uh, as well, it's good to be together with you. We do have a new verse. It is the month of November already, believe it or not, and uh, this is the first week that we're going to have this memory verse for this month, so let's go ahead and say it together. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Mark 13, 31. And we are actually going to get to that text this morning. We have a lot to cover today, so we are going to jump right in. I believe as we gather here today, all of us could use a good story of triumph, victory. We look around the world today and we see much that could weigh us down, that could feel heavy, that could look like defeat. As we examine the culture we live in, we see division, we see hatred and animosity, and as we look outside of our culture to the broader world, we see wars, we see rumors of wars, we see growing conflict in different parts of the world. Friends, as believers, as followers of Christ, we can live triumphantly in all circumstances. As we approach the end of Jesus' life, our suffering servant, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to witness how he himself embodied triumph in weakness. If you have your Bibles today, you want to take them or access them on your device and turn to Mark chapter 11. We will accompany the text today as it describes the events at the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week. Much is going to happen to Jesus. He's going to face much turmoil. He's going to face a lot of antagonism. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. But make no doubt about it, this is a story of triumph in the Scriptures. There is much to cover, so let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help as we encounter the living Word today. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We recognize it where we're at right now as the exact thing that we need, the bread of life that can nourish us, that can give us the tools, that can give us the words that we can use to help other people grow, Lord, and that has the words that you use to help us grow. We're thankful for it. Father, as we encounter the text today, we meet our Savior Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. He rode into Jerusalem on a colt. And he was worshipped by the people they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Father, yet they did not recognize him for who he really was. He was the king that they desired, but not the king that they thought he was. And Father, today as we gather around the text, we are grateful that he was and is the king that we need. We thank you for the work that he did on our behalf, the work that glorified you, and even though he faced much turmoil, much antagonism in his life, he was faithful till the end. Lord, many of us who have gathered today 
find ourselves in a place of weakness. Some of us have been through tremendous seasons of difficulty. Some of us have experienced loss that's very near and very acute. We are hurting. We are here hurting and grieving today, Lord. Some of us have walked through seasons of affliction, of pain. We've faced trials, roads of recovery, difficulty at our jobs. Lord, often we feel weak. And your scriptures present us with a testimony that tells us that even in our weakness, we can be triumphant. Help us see that today as we explore this text together. Help us to learn what it means to live triumphantly in our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin this morning by reading Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus has said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The suffering servant is entering Jerusalem where he is going to be received and he is going to be worshipped as Hosanna in the highest, but he will not truly be seen, heard, or received as Messiah. Outwardly, in the minds of the people, Jesus has proven that he fits the bill. He has the abilities that they need to win influence and gain power over their Roman authorities. The people in this text are seeking salvation, but they're seeking it according to their own definitions and own terms. They do not yet understand or truly know the purpose and the nature of Messiah and his mission. In chapter 11 of Mark, Jesus is going to come into and out of the city on three occasions. The first time is right here in these first 11 verses in the triumphal entry. The second time he comes in is going to include the temple cleansing. And the third is going to be followed by attempts from the people to trap Jesus into treason or blasphemy. The events of the temple cleansing, as recorded in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, are enveloped by Jesus' interaction with a fig tree. Look at verse 12. 
in chapter 11. Now the next day, as they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. After noticing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to see if he could find any fruit on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What is going on? Why a fig tree? And this fig tree in chapters 11 through 13 of Mark is going to come up on three occasions. Twice in chapter 11, once in chapter 13. The fig tree in chapter 11 is an illustration of the nation of Israel at the time. Bright, full of colors. All of their outward behaviors, all of their religious vigor, all of the commitment that they had to their traditions, it all looked so beautiful, bright, green, and leafy. And yet, there was no fruit from it. Because they were worshiping God with their lips, even with their hands and their feet, but their hearts were very far from him the leaves were green they were ripe most would approach the tree and expect to find fruit or at least buds of fruit evidence that fruit would be there eventually but for the nation the fruit of true righteousness was not existent They had their styles, they had their modes, they had their methods of sacrificing and worshiping, and they were no longer producing fruit. So in the temple cleansing then, Jesus is prepared to enter into this mess that was the structured religion of Judaism, and he was prepared to set up a new system of worship, one that would bear the intended fruit. It would be a type of worship that would be built on the cornerstone of Christ, established through faith in Him alone, by His grace alone, ordered by His Word alone, and set onward for the glory of God alone. So Jesus goes in, and we remember this scene from the other gospel accounts. He clears the temple. He drives out the money changers and the profiteers. He's, in doing this, he's throwing the religious leaders into a frenzy. In verse 17 of chapter 11, Jesus quotes directly from the people's own prophet Isaiah when he says this, is it not written, my house will be called a house of what? Prayer. Far from a house of prayer was the temple. It was a house, it had become a house of profit. It had become a house where people would take advantage of one another. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The ways of Jesus, friends. Prayer, humble dependence on the Father a father who was available to all nations, these ways are rejected and despised. They are a fruit 
too costly for the religious leaders to consider. Too much would have to change in the day-to-day way that we structure things in Judaism for this house to look like this. Too much of a sacrifice. They rejected Christ. On the third day, the disciples with Jesus approached the city. Peter sees the fig tree. He sees it, the one that Jesus had cursed. Look in verse 21. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus responds in verse 22. He says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If someone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. For this reason, I tell you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your Father in heaven will also forgive your sins. You see, friends, when we look at the fig tree and we see all the bright leaves that adorned it, bright leaves that had no fruit, faith, as Jesus teaches and describes it, is not about the outward adornments and the dressings. It's not about that. Faith is a deeply embedded internal reality that produces fruit. It's a reality that exists in the hearts of true disciples and as those disciples live and walk by faith, the faith that is produced, that's honoring to God, is consistent faithful belief, prayerful dependence, and consistent patterns of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Friends, imagine if this, if these things were the things that characterized the temple in Jesus' day, he may never have had to go in and turn over the tables. Do these things characterize our churches today? Patterns of belief, patterns of prayerful dependence. Friends, prayerful dependence reminds us That our daily strength does not depend on ourselves, but comes from God. We need to rely on Him. And then look at these consistent patterns of confession, repentance, regularly forgiving one another. Relationships, hard relationships, messy. But relationships, being in community together as designed by God for God's glory. They involve repentance. They involve confession. They involve forgiveness. Triumph in weakness, friends, requires a commitment to embracing Paul's acknowledgement that the strength of God is demonstrated and perfected in our weakness. It's hard, friends, to confess to one another that we've hurt one another. It's hard to recognize when we've done it, when we've sinned against one another, to confess, to repent, to say, you know, 
I was wrong. And I shouldn't have responded that way. And I'm going to turn from it. I'm not going to do that anymore. Next time, instead, I'll try this. Will you forgive me? That's messy relationship. But it's real relationship. And it needs to be part of the house of God. It shows vulnerability. It shows humility. It shows weakness. And in those patterns, friends, we can be triumphant. After clearing the temple here, Jesus is now vulnerable to the scrutiny and the attacks of the religious leaders. He has always been, as we've been in this gospel together, at each step along the way, he's been challenged by the religious leaders. He's been challenged by the Roman authorities. And certainly after he clears the temples and flips over the tables, he's going to be challenged again. Where did you get this authority, Jesus, to speak and to teach in this manner? And that's the argument that begins to erupt in the next portion at the end of chapter 11. And it's an argument that leads Jesus into sharing a parable illustrating that his authority came from God. And that his authority was rejected by the caretakers that God had appointed to nurture and care for his vineyard, Israel. Take a look at chapter 12, the beginning. Jesus began to speak to them in parables in verse 1. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took the man and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out into the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Isn't that interesting? they perceived that he told the parable against them. Yeah. <laughs> he did. He was. The tenants described in the parable were the religious leaders. 
Those who God had entrusted with Israel, his vineyard over the years. God had sent them former servants in the positions of prophets and priests and kings. Many dealt with treacherously. Many had met violent ends. Finally, the owner of the vineyard sends his precious son and the tenants will kill him also. What does it sound like? The warning in verse 9 is sobering. The owner of the vineyard will one day return. We're going to get there. Chapter 13. And destroy the tenants and give his vineyard to others. The son that was killed and cast out of the vineyard, the one who was rejected and despised, would become the chief cornerstone in what would be a marvelous and supernatural work of God. Now, how do you think Jesus' parable made the religious leaders feel? Anybody? Do you think they were thrilled with Jesus? They were already seeking to arrest him. They were already trying to figure out a way to trap him. They were even more enraged and angered now. His parable generates further disdain from these religious leaders who now begin to scheme up ways that they could trap Jesus into making himself guilty by either speaking words of sedition against Rome or words of blasphemy against Judaism. So here in chapter 12, they they are going to bring him into three separate arguments. In their first attempt, the religious leaders and the loyalists to Herod try to back Jesus into a debate about taxes. They're trying to make it an either-or predicament with the taxes. Caesar or the Jews. Jesus turns it into a both-and answer. Matthew chapter 12, verse 17. Jesus says to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. When we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, we are giving to God what is God because it all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. God is on the throne. He has the control. His purposes will not be thwarted, confused, or challenged by anything on earth. It is God who raises up and takes down those in positions of power and authority. There's the first challenge. It was a political one. The second is more of a theological nature. We have these sometimes in the church, right? The next challenge from Christ is from a group of leaders called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. This was a theological debate that was raging in Jesus' day. And they thought that they had good reasons for not believing in it. Pragmatic reasons why they shouldn't. For instance, it just didn't work. If a man had had different wives on earth, which one would he get married to or be combined with or unified with in heaven after the resurrection? Wouldn't answering that question force God into some moral dilemma? It just didn't make sense. Therefore, they just 
One way they would dismiss the resurrection is by using this argument of marriage. A man has multiple wives on earth. Who is he married to in heaven? See, there can't be a resurrection. I love how Jesus responds. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Aren't you deceived for this reason? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? I love, don't you love how Jesus goes back to the scriptures? He's always going back to the scriptures. He's going back to the scriptures with Satan when he's tempted. He goes back to the scriptures here. This is his pattern. He goes back to the scriptures again. God said to Moses from the bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. In his response, Jesus upsets the carefully constructed systematic theologies of the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees, they knew the Bible, like the Pharisees. They could have quoted it from front to back, back to front, in every angle, in every way imaginable. They knew it. But they had not the slightest idea of how to actually interpret or understand them. They were guilty of taking the words of scriptures and using them in a way that Moses, or God for that matter, had never intended for them to be used. And this happens still in the church today. So much so that they thought they could justify an erroneous position related to their objection to the resurrection. They were wrong. Not only were they misrepresenting the scriptures, but they were also severely misunderstanding the power of God. Where had they gotten this idea that people would marry or be given in marriage after the resurrection in the first place? Where did that come from? And then Jesus reminds them that they're overlooking a rather simple yet profound truth. This is amazing. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't dead. Can you just grab that? As you sit here today, church, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. When God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He wasn't intending for Moses to hear those words and think, oh yeah, all those dead guys. No. He's the God of the living. They're alive. Amen? He is the God of the living. you imagine the Sadducees? <laughs> wow. And the people were amazed. They're watching this go on. The text tells us over and over again, the people were amazed. The people were amazed. Jesus is just taking them back to the scriptures. That's all he's doing. 
He's taking them back to God's word. The next challenge, then, is one that's related to the law. The first challenge, more political. The second, more theological. The third, more legal by nature. Of all the commands, which one, Jesus, is the greatest and most important of all? 29 to 31, Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In your note guides this week, in the right column of the note guides, I put the Old Testament text that Jesus is actually referring back to and quoting back to for each of these challenges. He's answered all three challenges faithfully interpreting and implying the scriptures with each response he's grounding his authority in God's word he models for his disciples he models for us friends a faithful approach to engagement with the scriptures when we're challenged with the greatest questions of our day when people come and they ask and they try to back us into a quarter, whether it be politically, whether it be theologically, whether it be legally, socially, whatever it might be, we have a safe and sure foundation in the scriptures. Triumph in weakness, friends, looks like reliance on God's words above our own to answer the questions and the questioners present in our lives. In his answers to the question, Jesus is demonstrating to the gathered crowd a mastery of depth, a complete grasp of the scriptures that was far beyond any rabbi or legal expert that had ever stood before them. And in verses 35 to 37 of chapter 12, Jesus continues to delight the crowd by using the scriptures to show how the Messiah would be both God as David's Lord and man as David's son. Jesus goes on the offensive and begins to ask them questions. Hmm. And then he turns the tables on the experts in the law by warning the crowd about them. I wondered as I read this this week if they were still present, the legal experts, when Jesus began to warn the crowd about them. Imagine. Many had probably left. Jesus, in his description, takes us back to the bright green leaves of the fruitless fig tree in chapter 11. Look at verse 38. In his teaching, Jesus also said, watch out for the experts in the law. They like walking around in long robes and elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' property and as a show, make long prayers. These men will receive a more severe punishment. And in the very next statement, Jesus is going to contrast the pride and the arrogance of the legal experts with another example of fruit that true faith produces. Jesus walks over to the offering boxes. He takes a seat 
Observing the crowds coming in to drop off their offerings, some dropping a few, others dropping large amounts. And look at verse 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth less than a penny. He called his disciples and said to them, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the offering box than all the others. For they all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of what? Her poverty. Put in what she had to live on, everything she had. The end of chapter 12, friends, is clear and it's important here for the first readers of Mark's gospel. While it remains transformative and instructive for the church today, God does not reward a faith that elevates itself on human merit, how much money we have, how educated we are, what our political, social, or marital status is. It has nothing to do with how bright and shiny our leaves appear to be on the outside, but rather how big, how bold, and how beautiful we're dressed up in here, in the heart. And that's the work that Jesus does. Friends, we can't fix our own hearts. I'm not a heart surgeon. I wouldn't try if I was (laughs) to fix my own. There's only one person that can get at our hearts, that can truly fix our hearts. And he does it so beautifully. It's Jesus can heal us from the inside he makes us right with God his holiness becomes ours he cleans us up he lifts us up here comes a widow in poverty and out of her poverty she gives everything she has in her weakness she triumphs Her inability is God's glory. Her lack is God's abundance. Her faith serves as an example for us all. The church in Rome, these first readers that were reading this gospel, it was marked by tremendous suffering and persecution. They lacked great wealth. They lacked resources. They had very little social or political power. All they could give was from their poverty. And what they needed to hear and what they needed to know is that their reward was great. Now, chapter 13. We have to remember in this portion of Scripture, chapter 13 is is in this group here of Mark, and it would make little sense to just pluck it out and try to interpret it apart from everything that came before it. We have to hold it within its context so that we do not wield it inappropriately as we seek to grasp and apply the contents of it. There's much here. We're not going to get through every detail. I promise. I know many of you are excited. I don't have a chart today. I'm sorry. 
The disciples exit the temple courts with Jesus. They're on their way out. They begin to admire the tremendous stones and buildings. Isn't it amazing? Like looking at the fig tree, they're looking at the temple. Oh, Jesus, look how glorious that is. Look at those big stones. Look how wonderful it looks. Jesus meets their impressions of the temple's glory with his own somber warning. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be a sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished. Now what's ironic here, friends, is that the true and greater temple, Jesus, the one that was soon to be destroyed, was sitting and teaching his disciples about the less significant physical building named the temple that also would soon be destroyed. But unlike the temple they were admiring, Jesus would resurrect in full splendor and glory in three days. And as Mark records Jesus' answer, Mark's focus is on The second question, not the first. The primary emphasis of his focus is on the second question that the disciples ask. What signs will be present as the end of times draw near? And I've gone through and pulled out some observations from verses 6 to 22 for us today. Some of the signs that Jesus points to in the text, many are going to arrive claiming to be the Messiah. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations, kingdom against kingdom in verse 8. There's going to be natural disasters and famine. There's going to be persecution of Jesus' followers coming both from within the church And outside the church, he uses words like councils and synagogues and words like kings and governors to represent that the persecution is going to come from both inside and outside. A spirit of antichrist is going to take over. In verses 14 to 23, we could go back to the phrase, the way that seems right to man will rule over the way that is right according to to Jesus. There's going to be suffering in abundance in verse 19 and then in verse 22 the presence of false messiahs, false prophets who are also going to have power to perform signs and wonders are going to be present. And friends, as we sit here today, we are realizing the groanings of our world with the birth pains of some of these future devastations, are we not? Are there rumors of wars and wars in our world today? as we sit here right now? Are there famines throughout the world and natural disasters? We are not unaware of the realities that we are living in even today. Some of you come in here on Sunday morning and and you say uh, to me, is this the end? And sometimes I respond, if it is, Lord, come quickly. Right? Hmm. We can appreciate, I appreciate passages like Mark 13 because I believe what they do is they prompt our curiosity and they generate within us a lifelong desire to grow in our appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. We don't have answers to all these things. Is this this or is this that? I don't like to do speculative theology. I'm not one that practices it very often. 
And while there is much to get curious about it in this chapter, we will not construct any timelines today, but generally, humbly, we might summarize the contents in this chapter in this way as it relates to the end times. Verses 5 to 13, Jesus describes events and trials that disciples will endure between Jesus' ascension and then his second coming. So if you read verses 5 to 13, you'll see some of the events that may take place in that window. Verses 14 to 18, the sign of abomination. Now again, lots of scholarly debate over what Jesus is talking about here. We might, as we sit here today, recognize that there could be multiple incomplete fulfillments that served as a mirage to a future complete fulfillment of this. So we know, for instance, in AD 70, that the temple was tore down, that there was what the, some of the Jews called the abomination of desolation, when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, put his, uh, sacrificed a pig uh, on the altar. So perhaps incomplete near fulfillments that are pointing towards a future complete fulfillment. Verses 19 to 23 describe a specific window of time related to a great tribulation period where there is going to be much suffering and much persecution in this world. And then verses 24 to 27 describe the return of Jesus. Jesus, again, is going to use a fig tree in chapter 13 to demonstrate how disciples and followers of him might keep an eye on its leaves to know and to be able to discern when the time for its fruit is near. And then the important reminder that is our memory verse for this month, right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Things are going to get really difficult There is going to be a great trial and tribulation. Heaven and earth as we know it and experience them today will pass away, making way for a new and fully restored version of them because God is faithful. His word will endure. It endures forever. Verse 32. Important. But as for that day or hour, no one knows it. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Interesting. Like I said, I'm not going to answer all the questions this week. I don't have the answer to all the questions. The mystery of Scripture. It's beautiful. It's a book that's meant to be meditated on for our entire lives. And it's passages like this that show us why there is much to learn, much to comprehend, much to understand. How could Jesus, who is God, not even know? Was he veiling some of his knowledge, covering it? Could you imagine if he told everyone, I know when this is going to happen. Were you ever at summer camp with kids before? What's the number one question at summer camp with kids? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Could you imagine if Jesus would have told the disciples in the world, I know when this is happening. 
I don't know. I don't know why he says it this way. I don't know why the Gospels have it recorded that he says it this way. But this is what the word says. And I I sit in the tension of it. And I allow the Holy Spirit to guide and direct my thinking as I prayerfully consider what it means that Jesus said that not even the Son knew the day and the hour. All I can say is, if he wasn't willing to acknowledge that he knew it at that time, then who am I to pretend like I can discern and know right here today? I won't, I won't say, friends. We certainly can see the signs, like I said earlier, but I can't give a timeline. The greater message, what Jesus really wants us to see and understand in chapter 13, he repeats four times here. Starting in verse 33. Watch out. Stay alert. Verse 37. What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. For the disciples seeking to live as faithful, victorious servant, triumphant today, one who sees the fruit of salvation produced in our lives, What a question that should be in this text for us is what does it look like to live alert? If the end of all things is at hand, if the culmination of all things is near, and we're supposed to stay alert, to watch out, what does that look like? And I'm so thankful that the scriptures give us a clear answer to that question. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. It's a wonderful chapter. Peter and John Mark were close. We know that they were friends. We know that they accompanied one another on their missionary journeys. We see that in Acts, at least on one occasion. Peter was present when Jesus said these words. He heard Jesus challenge his disciples to stay alert over and over and over again. So he writes an epistle to a church that's struggling and facing great turmoil. And in chapter 4 of his epistle, starting in verse 7, he says these words. I'm just going to read it, the whole thing. For the culmination of all things is near. So what does it look like to stay alert? So, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, 
Do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ so that when His glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory who is the Spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a criminal or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator as they do good. Friends, as I look at Mark chapter 13 and I see Jesus' admonition that we stay alert, that His disciples stay alert, stay watchful, Stay ready. And I read the words of 1 Peter chapter 4. I can't help but think. And Peter says so even himself. That this is what it looks like. To stay alert and stay ready for the return of Jesus. While we wait in this world today. And as you look at these qualities, there's 10 of them up here on the screen. If you look at these qualities that are in 1 Peter chapter 4, we might also consider that these are not the qualities that our world celebrates as triumph or triumphant. These are not the qualities that our world celebrates as victorious. These were the qualities, though, that were demonstrated by our Savior who served and suffered for us. Friends, triumph and weakness is what we're after as disciples of Jesus. We've been called victorious and we've been told that God's power is perfected in our weakness. Today we get to celebrate communion together as a congregation. I'm going to invite our ushers to go to the back at this time. And what a way to inhabit and practice some of these exact qualities from 1 Peter chapter 4. Focused, consistent prayer. Fervent love. We come together as one body. Gratitude and showing hospitality. We share together as one body in the body and blood of Christ, abundant service, we are served the elements by our elders, sharing God's word, our time together has been bathed and soaked in the word of God, we're rejoicing and we're glad, this is a time of worship, it's a time to be glad, a time to rejoice, some of us here, many of us here have suffered. We're following the admonition to live free from shame in our suffering, glorifying God and trusting our souls to our faithful creator and doing good 
because he's called us to remember his body and blood. As our elders come today, as we enjoy communion together, we're going to hear from one of our uh, young people. Joel is here. He's going to be playing for us today. And if you have your hymnals, I'm going to ask that you would take them out right now. Uh, They're actually in front of you in the pew. You might need to share. And as we pass the blood, we're going to hear a rendition of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. That is hymn 324. So you might want to turn there to prepare to reflect on those words as we pass the bread. And if you take your bookmark that's in your weekly this week, it is a new month, so there's a bookmark in your weekly, you can put your bookmark in the second hymn. Your bookmark looks like this here. The second hymn is 337. 337, nothing but the blood. When we pass the cup, perhaps you'd reflect on the words of hymn 337, nothing but the blood. If you're a guest at CNBC today or a visitor and you know the Lord, He's your Savior, and we'd invite you to participate with us in communion. Uh, If you're here today as a guest and and you don't know the Lord, you've never uh, started a relationship with Him, and you're like, what is going on? We would just invite you to just sit and, and watch and observe. Don't feel any obligation to participate in the events that are taking place in here today. This is a way that we come together as a body of Christ to remember and proclaim uh, the death and the resurrection of our son, Jesus. So before we pass the bread, let's pray and prepare our hearts for this time. Father, your son gave his body on a cross. It was broken. Weak, yet strong. So Lord, as we approach this time, we ask you to make our hearts ready to reflect and to think about our own weakness. Perhaps this week, Lord, there's sin in our lives that we need to confess, that we need to repent of. Perhaps there's a relationship, Lord, that we need to make right. We need to extend forgiveness or ask forgiveness. Father, if that would be true today, maybe we just choose to not participate today until we have that relationship mended. Lord, we want to participate in this together as one body united around the body of your son, Jesus. We want to do it with clear hearts and clear minds because we are thankful for that sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Elders, would you pass the bread?
On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you as often as you eat. Do so in remembrance of me. In the same manner that he took the bread, he also took the cup, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant which will be poured out for you in my blood so often as you drink. Do so in remembrance of me. The next hymn that will be played is hymn number 337, Nothing But the Blood. If you'd like to contemplate on those lyrics, why our elders pass the cup.
blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink. Father, we thank you that we can gather as one body. In a world that's very divided today, Lord, we have your son Jesus that unites his body, the church, as one people from every nation, tribe, and language. You call us together, and Jesus has embodied and lived out for us the perfect patterns for how we can honor and glorify you in this world. Lord, I pray that we would learn from his example in weakness. He was faithful to the end. Lord, would you motivate that same faithfulness within each and every one of us? Would you motivate the love that we need for this week? Might we see Jesus for who he truly is, our Messiah, the cornerstone. And might we worship him both in spirit and in truth, honoring you. Thank you for his sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.